0: the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales.
1: Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, travellers from the UK, they'll no longer be required to work regionally and the changes come into into effect on the 1st of July. Uh, It uh, could make uh, for some interesting changes to the rural workforce, Uh, we'll hear about that shortly on the program because employers in the bush are a bit worried.
2: We do need, uh, unfortunately, casual team to come in and do that seasonal uh, work role and hospitality is huge. Everyone from kitchens to, to cooking to, to waiting on tables to bar staff. And we even get people driving buses and boats and all sorts of stuff that come from other parts because there's so Anything that affects that and changes the demand on or the supply of those people to sustain what we need to, on the employment front is really quite concerning.
1: We'll hear more about that, and you might have some thoughts on that. You can send us a text. Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is the number to text us here at the Country Hour. UK travellers no longer no longer no longer required to work regionally as of the first of July this year. And uh, we'll also look at wheat production in the U.S. It continues to fall as, f- as farmers uh, move more into corn and soybean production. We find out why that trend is continuing and what it might mean for Australian farmers as well. So all that and a whole lot more coming up on the program shortly. But first to Backpackers, they provide a vital workforce out out in the bush in rural and regional towns, working at uh, cafes, pubs, farms and cattle stations, sheep stations, but under the Free Trade Agreement, travellers from the UK they'll no longer be required to work regionally, which till now has been the mandate for all working holiday makers seeking a visa extension. The changes come into effect on the 1st of July this year. They're only for UK travellers, which do make up the largest demographic of backpackers. Allen or Smithy from Outback Aussie Tours in Western Queensland says it's going to be a huge shock to many small towns.
2: There's a huge reliance on on backpackers uh, for our um, team that we need to build up to to handle such a seasonal activity. And I guess that's where the problem is. You know, tourism is quite seasonal and we do need a seasonal and a transient population to fill that gap. Whilst we'd love to have more people uh, working locally, what do they do over the other times of the year?
3: And when is the
4: busier months of the year for you?
2: Well, our peak peak time is the June-July holidays because from Easter through to really June, we start to see the Grey Nomad numbers build up with the caravans and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, June-July is the peak. They say Mother's Day to Father's Day is the tourism season. Not quite true, uh, but depends on how busy the school holidays are in September. But, you know, we can try and employ people full-time to a certain point, but we do need, uh, unfortunately, casual team to come in and do that seasonal uh, work role and hospitality is huge everyone from kitchens to, to cooking to to waiting on tables to bar staff and we we'll even get people driving buses and boats and all sorts of stuff that come from other parts because of this so anything that affects that and changes the demand on or the supply of those people to sustain what we need to, on the employment front is really quite concerning. So I think this is a little bit of a red flag because we really need to say, well, hey, I think we need a bigger strategy, probably as, a, as not just a, a town, but maybe a region and possibly a state and a country to say, well, how do we keep the bush in optimum performance with seasonal activity? And it's not about the bush, it's about regional Australia. And if we need to grow tourism or we want to grow any other industry, We need the employment sector to to really be working right, so we really need to be in touch with these immigration changes and maybe there needs to be a bigger picture there so we can work as a team collaboratively to to have more consistency of um, of people that can work seasonally in Western Queensland or any regional centre in Australia.
4: And so what would you like to see? Do you see any types of solutions for what seems to be an inevitable staffing shortage with the lack of...
5: British
2: Backpackers coming through. Yeah, I, I think we need to tell our story better. That's why I say we need a bigger strategy. We need to tell our story better of how livable these communities are. A lot of people come out here getting a backpacker's job and some of them actually, they stay. They, they get married, they have children and, and life goes on. So maybe we can do a better job of selling the livability of these towns, these communities, let's share that knowledge because I'm sure we're going to encourage people not to do it because they get 88 days on their visa, but do as a first choice, not a second choice. That's the strategy I'd like to
1: see. That's Eleanor Smithy from Outback Aussie Tours in Western Queensland. Uh, Sarah Clark is a backpacker from a small town in the north of England. She's come to remote Australia vol- voluntarily to get a bit of rural experience
0: so i came out here at the end of september and so i've only been here about three and a bit months but I love it and I I don't plan on going back to the UK anytime soon Um, I'm really hoping I can make something work out here and and get my permanent residency and and everyone's so friendly and welcoming and, and yeah I mean obviously the pub here they're very used to having backpackers working here so all the locals are quite used to all the sort of interchanging backpackers that come through
5: and then so the visa changes come into effect on the 1st of July this year Yes. what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yes, yeah, so because I don't have to now do my 88 days my my rural work to get my second year's visa, I have no need to be to be working out here, but obviously I chose to come out here because I wanted to and I thought it would be a good experience and I thought I'd really enjoy it. But yeah, I think it's I think it's a really good thing and I'm I'm glad it's there, but also I can see how it's going to affect places like this. It will impact things as in they probably won't come out as much, but then again, there'll be still be people like me that want to come out here for the experience and want to sort of live out here, sort of work in a more rural place. Because um, I, I do think the appeal is there. I think it is a lovely place to come and be. And what have been your
4: Aussie highlights
0: of being out here? <laughs> oh, I mean, the cow. We, we have a calf here called Barney, who is hand-reared, bowl-fed twice a day. He's treated as like a pet. And um, he's lovely and he's really friendly, but that's sort of a you, that's not something you'd get in a city. You're not going to have a pet cow in the middle of Brisbane. And yeah, I just I just love the the atmosphere of everyone and everyone being so lovely and welcoming and happy to sort of get to know you and have a chat. It's, yeah, it's nice. That's
1: British Backpacker Sarah Clark uh, talking to Longreach reporter Grace Nakamura about UK backpackers no longer having to complete. 88 days of regional work and uh, they're saying that could come as a huge shock to small towns. You can always send me a text Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is the number to text me here at the country hour. Well, let's look at uh, grains news now and US wheat production. The figures are out. It's uh, fallen once again this year. It's a continuing trend over several years. And the main reason for this is the higher profits that U.S. farmers can get with corn and soybeans. So if the U.S. is no longer the wheat powerhouse that it has been in the past, what country is going to take over? Is it going to be Russia or is it going to be France? And what are the implications for Australia in the mix as well? I some of those questions of Andrew Whitelaw, who's a grains analyst and director of episode3.net.
3: Look, we've seen some pretty low... Acreages of 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 wheat, almost almost year on year for, in the past sort of five or six years, where U.S. farmers are just planting less and less wheat, and 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 you're right that trend has been has been there. Look, largely, if if you look at things like the U.S. U.S. farming systems, it's very different from from our farming systems. Um, We we are we are predominantly wheat, barley, canola, Uh, but if you look at the U.S., it's really corn, soybeans are, are the number one crops. Or number one and number two and a lot of their production is for you know a heavily subsidized a uh, biofuels program so a lot of farmers have been switching to corn and soybeans wherever possible uh, because you know if you look at the trends as well the trends are for increasing yields of corn so they are producing more and more corn because it makes them more money and that's that's why anyone around the world produces what they produce is uh, they're going to produce what provides them with the highest margins same as same as here we don't grow grow triticale anymore because uh, it doesn't have the margins that, that wheat barley and canola have uh, farmers go to what is going to make them the most money, and that's what we're seeing in the United States. Uh, I think it's I think largely it's a genetics thing, followed by the fact that you know you've got that sort of really strong biofuels lobby.
1: So does that mean that Russia will be the number one you know producer of wheat, and they they'll just uh, stay at the top?
3: Well, I think I think it's important when, to to differentiate when we say producer. Uh, I think the number one producer is china off the top of my head yeah of course but but what's what's important is who who the exporters are yeah and and if we look at the exporters it's still going to be the u.s is going to be a big exporter but yes russia has obviously increased its dominance of export markets in the past you know 15 years and it continues to be probably the most important but that is also included with Ukraine, Kazakhstan, ourselves, Argentina, there's like a top eight countries that export the vast bulk of the world's grain and that will continue to be the case.
1: So does that mean there might be a premium for Australian wheat producers in terms of like, cause the Russian wheat is not quite at our quality?
3: Look, we've seen, you know, that we've spoken about this a lot, Michael, over the last couple of years. Last couple of years, we had some massive crops in Australia. And, and that led Australian crops to be heavily discounted versus the rest of the world. And what we're seeing now is that our crops size is, is down, still still a, an average above average crop this, this year. Uh, but the reality is that because we produce less, then we've grown a premium versus the rest of the world. So look, I think when we look at grain markets, we have to know that it's going to be fluid, it's going to be changeable, and it's going to be based on, on the seasonal conditions here and overseas, whether we get a premium or not will be dependent on, on a whole bunch of factors from logistics to quality to, to time. So uh yep, if if the US produces less wheat then um it is is beneficial to us because it means there's less less wheat on the exportable market and, and we are pretty close to places like Indonesia which is, you know, the, Indonesia, China are both, you know, number one, number two, and number three, sort of alongside Egypt for importing wheat, and uh, these countries are importing more and more. So,
1: logistically, it's easier to ship from Australia than from, say, Russia to China, or, or certainly, certainly easier to ship to Indonesia.
3: Uh, absolutely. So, if you if you look at the trade flows uh, from to Indonesia, for instance, yeah we are exporting a lot of wheat there especially especially from western australia and and you sort of see you do see wheat coming from ukraine and russia into indonesia Uh but the volumes tend to increase during periods when we're expensive so if you remember the drought 2018 2019 big volumes of wheat would go into ukraine uh, from ukraine into indonesia uh, displacing our volumes because we just got too expensive and and that is what is important. Thing is, is our comparative value versus the rest of the world. We can only get the premium can arrive, but it can only get so big before we get too expensive. And that's the same with any commodity, whether it's wheat, barley, canola, sheep, or cattle.
1: And will the Chinese prefer to buy from us for because of quality than say Russia?
3: Look, like we we saw at the end of. The end of uh, 2023, it's a scary to think we're in 2024. Uh, China buying big licks of US wheat, and, and that was not the most unusual thing, but it's something that they don't do often. The reality is, it was cheap, cheap compared to Australia, cheap, and um, that's where they bought it from. But China's been buying big volumes of wheat you know, for the last three years uh, from, from all sorts of places, but increasingly, Australia. Where they buy for, I think, is still heavily dependent on price. China has, has got agreements with Russia to, to buy wheat uh, from them over the next couple of years, and uh, they have changed some of the biosecurity protocols over, over the past year, uh, which is obviously part of that sort of strengthening relationships between those two nations. But I think, yeah, again, it comes down to price. With China, it's always going to come down to price. As long as it meets the, the, the quality, it's all blended anyway. Um, and then it's going to come down to price.
1: And what about the tensions in the Red Sea, in the Suez Canal? Is that affecting world trade? Is that going to affect the dra- the grains trade?
3: Look, it's got the potential. It definitely has the potential of uh, of, of impacting uh, trade flows because obviously there is a lot of trade that goes through that sort of area, not necessarily from, from Australia. But we've had those, uh, those strikes by sort of coalition forces on Saturday or Friday or Saturday, where um, they the attacked Houthi rebels. The, the big sort of impact I believe is if there is an increase in tension in the Middle East. Yes, there's trade flows that can be impacted by, you know, changes to shipping flows. But there's also the impact of a widening conflict, you know, including sort of Saudi Arabia, Yemen, well Bol- obviously the Israel Palestinian conflict continues. But if we see impacts to production or exports of crude oil that could increase the crude oil price and there is a very, very strong correlation between energy markets, especially crude oil, and, uh, and wheat and corn markets. So if we see you know, an increase in conflict in that region, which produces and exports a large volume of the world's oil and gas, then that could feasibly flow through to increased grain prices. All these things are all inter- interconnected and impacts can flow from, from, from all sides.
1: So it's not just about, you know, getting the, the bulk commodities through the Suez Canal. It impacts on a whole bunch of stuff.
3: No, I think, I think the impact on, on crude oil is potentially stronger than the impact on, on trade flows. And, you know, trade flows, yes, trade flows slow down, but they'll still continue to move. And we're not talking about a full-scale conflict in that region at the moment. That's impacting shipping, but also it just means there's a slowdown. The ships are still there, but they might just have to go down the the south of South Africa. It just slows things down. It doesn't stop things, I think, is an important thing to remember.
1: Andrew Whitelaw is a grains analyst and director of Episode3.net. It's 21 minutes past 12.
6: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
4: Hello, I'm Samantha Donovan. Join me for The World Today. A mission to the Middle East. The Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, flies to the embattled region as fallout from the Gaza war spills across borders. And the fairy tale of an unlikely love story continues. Australian-born Mary Donaldson becomes the Queen of Denmark alongside her husband, King Frederick, in Copenhagen. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today.
7: You're listening to The Country Hour
4: on ABC Radio New South Wales.
1: Authorities believe the cases of tyleria amongst cattle producers on the coast may be underreported. Farmers in the southeast have lost calves to the tick-borne disease this year. Farmers restocking and bringing cattle in from inland areas to the coast are particularly at risk. Richard Saunders is a district vet based in Bega with southeast local land services. And he's urging farmers to get in touch if they feel their cattle are affected or could be affected by the disease,
8: cases ranging uh, from up around the uh, Maroochy, Batemans Bay, or Yorbertala region, uh, all the way down to the Bega Valley, and uh, and there's also cases occurring further north in uh, in the Berry region, up around Nowra and Shoalhaven. Um, it does seem to be, uh, you know, confined to the, the the coastal strip, so to speak, and yeah, in general. Um, Due to that rain, lovely rainfall that we received uh, in early December, um, it has probably led to a bit of a spike uh, in the numbers of ticks, uh, which in turn uh, has uh, increased uh, the the number of uh, tolleria cases that we're seeing.
9: Is there a seasonal aspect to the fact that there's an increase of cases at this time of the year?
8: Look, uh, there, there are... Definitely higher risk periods, and um, and that that's related to the, the peak bush tick activity, uh, which is typically uh, your spring and your summer months. Um, in, infections do occur uh, through autumn and winter, uh, just because the the bush tick can survive year round. Um, and and I mean that the coastal areas are, are now considered endemic for for tyleria. It's here. And it's, yeah, it's uh, it's spread by the bush tick, which is uh, Haemophysalis longicornis.
9: You say it, it's endemic to the uh, coastal region at the moment. Are the kind of uh, infections and, and deaths that you're saying at the moment um, par for the course for a year or are they higher than usual? Look,
8: it's um, they're, they're probably about on par with, with other years. Uh, the other aspect is that we as uh, local land services vets and and private veterinary practitioners may not be receiving the reports as well. Some producers might just think, "Oh, yeah, I think that's what it was." But we'd really encourage anyone who uh, who thinks that their their calves or adult cattle may be affected by toleria to certainly get in touch with either your local land services district vet or your private vet and. Um, and just we can we can confirm that it is or isn't uh, by taking a blood test. So um, we are interested in in confirming uh, cases because uh, there's we're not sure just how prevalent uh, it's been because I I feel that we're maybe not receiving uh, all reports.
9: What's the uh, veterinary advice for dealing with cattle if you're starting to see signs that they may be affected by tyleria?
8: Uh, look, it's a bit of a challenging one because there's uh, there's no specific treatment for you, you know animals that are infected. There, there are drugs that are available overseas, but um, due to uh, residues and, and market access with our export markets, we don't have access to uh, those those specific drugs. So the the treatment's basically around um, leaving them to their own devices. So animals that are that are mustered long distances and and, and stressed. Uh, that can be enough to tip them over the edge and um, and and kill them, because they've basically got less red blood cells circulating throughout their body uh, due to the destruction of those red blood cells by the Tyleria organism. So and and a couple of management strategies, so trying to carve um, carve your cows down in in uh, paddocks that are away from bushland or uh, away from paddocks that have got high numbers of kangaroos, because they can uh, they're, they're a, there can be a host for the bush tick, so they can spread the ticks around, and include and also calving and um, bringing in. If you do have to bring in new cattle, uh, do that through the winter or the cooler months, um, and then when those animals arrive, try and use a a, a, a house paddock or a paddock close, uh, you know, by so you can keep an eye on them uh, just for the first couple of weeks. Uh, so if any of those animals do start looking um, unwell. Um, yeah that they can be supported uh, rather than yeah treated
1: richard saunders is a district vet based in bega with southeast local land services and he was speaking there to josh becker 27 minutes past 12
10: you're listening to the country hour
8: on abc radio new south wales
1: When McClay Valley beef producer Darren Sutherland lost his mother to cancer, he decided to raise funds to help researchers find a cure. Now, in its eighth year, the the Sutherland charity steer, a 745 kilogram Hereford Bullock, sold for 292 cents a kilo to Wingham Beef Exports. That's a $2,175 dollar a boost for Cancer Council Australia, with Mr Sutherland telling Kim Honan that the event has now raised close to $45,000 over the years.
11: Lost mum to cancer. I went, well, I'm not a runner, so I can't run to try and raise money, and I thought I can grow a cow. So I um, decided to choose a steer at the start of each year and grow him out for the whole year and sell him at the end of the year and see how much money we make.
10: And was Uh, there some um, fierce bidding, Darren?
11: Yeah, it was pretty, pretty strong, pretty strong. He was the um, dearest beast of the day and heaviest, one of the heavier fellas of the day. Um, yeah, it was a pretty good day overall.
10: And so when did you pick this steer out to be sold? What was it about this steer that you reckon, now? Oh, he's going to fetch a good price?
11: Well, every year we sort of choose a steer, like the fella for next year already been chosen. And we choose them 12 months out. They just go into the fattened in paddocks from now and they stay in the and paddocks until next year. And we just, yeah, poke them
10: along yeah so uh, how how heavy was he?
11: This fella was seven hundred and forty um seven hundred and forty five kilo
10: so a little bit lighter than previous years
11: yeah, a bit lighter than previous years. actually happened. He wasn't the steer that was supposed to go. The steer that went got a hernia, so I had to replace him
10: halfway through, so it was a bit lighter and um he fetched a good price. Are you happy with the price?
11: Oh, yeah, I'm real happy with the price with the way the market is at the moment. it's pretty pretty way down, but it was um definitely well above the market what the market's been doing, so. Like usual, everybody's getting chipping in and giving a bit of a hand towards the um, donation we put forward.
10: And who bought him? Um, Wingham Beef Exports bought him. So you don't know where he could end up, really?
11: We send cattle to Wingham already to their abattoirs and that, so he'll, he'll end up down that way and um, he'll go into one of their markets they've got. They do a lot of different markets everywhere, some go overseas, some stay local.
10: And this uh, fundraising for the charity Steer, you've been doing a, almost, what, close to a decade now? Yeah,
11: we're getting close. We we worked at, um this morning. This is the eighth one we've done.
10: And over that time, how much money have you actually raised?
11: Oh, look, I couldn't tell you exactly. I think we're up to around forty-five
10: thousand. And how how have you seen the community really embrace this fundraiser over those eight years?
11: Well, we've had locals buy the steer. We've had bigger companies like we buy the steer. We've um, like we've been selling the hats for a couple of years now, and there's people just come and buy the hats every year, and then. We always have the kids walk around with a bit of a bucket and people throw a few dollars into that here and there and, yeah.
10: Yeah, because, I, you know, I think we all know someone who has been touched by cancer.
11: Yeah, oh, yeah, there's heaps of people. As I said, a lady was talking to me yesterday, she goes, Do you know, there's one in two people who are affected by cancer in some way. And I said, yep, wouldn't surprise me.
10: And um, how fat are you hoping that uh, this steer gets that you've picked out already for next year gets?
11: Oh, I'm hoping this far we might be able to get up around the 900 kilo.
10: What are you feeding him on? Is he just, is he just nah, out on pasture?
11: Just out on pasture.
10: And that's all so you'll give him? Yep.
11: Only they all run him in best takes I've got. And we do plant um, a crop of rye um, over the winter months. So they all live on that. And then, yeah, just pasture. We run it. We've got pretty good pastures overall. So, yeah, we don't, we don't feed him growing anything. It's all just grass fed.
1: So talking about uh, that donation of that Bullock, Darren Sutherland is a beef produced from Belmore River in the Lower Maclay and the steer sold at uh, Kempsey Stock and Land annual steer and bullock sale Uh, and this year it attracted a record yarding of 2,500 head and as I said it sold for $2,175 and that money is going to Cancer Council Australia. It's uh, coming up to 29 minutes to 1 shortly. We'll have the uh, weather details. Certainly been a bit of rain around over the weekend. We'll hear a bit more about that. But uh, first, let's get some news headlines from Adam Story. Good afternoon.
7: Afternoon. Well, it's been 100 days since uh, the war uh, broke out between Israel and Hamas after uh, after Hamas launched its uh, terrorist attack uh, on Israel. Uh, now to mark that 100 days, Hamas has today published a video clip showing three Israeli hostages urging their government to bring about their release. Uh, supporters of the hostages in Israel and their families have also held a 24 hour protest in Tel Aviv urging the government to uh, step up moves to, uh, still uh, to free those. Uh, still held as soon as possible. Now, uh, the two men and women shown in this video were taken uh, while attending uh, the uh, Supernova Music Festival on October the 7th, and you've seen the footage of, um, of that incident on the day of the uh, Hamas attacks. Now, back home. Uh, Federal Labor MP Julian Hill is urging the government to crack down on Australians who are actually funding illegal Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank and he says Australia should consider making it illegal for citizens to fund uh, settlement activity and attach consequences including uh, visa bans. Now this comes as the Foreign Minister Penny Wong uh, visits Israel and the occupied territories this week. Uh, Back home, there's been a potentially toxic uh, algae bloom in the Ningan weir pools, and apparently it's affecting drinking water at Cobar now. Uh, It's issued a a red algae alert for uh, the Bogan River. Uh, Sorry, uh, it issued a red algae alert for the Bogan River late last year where Cobar pumps its drinking water from. Uh, But Level 1 water restrictions are now in place, and the water treatment plant there says it's doing its best, but uh, can't guarantee when those restrictions will be lifted. Uh, the federal government's announced $188 million to help bolster efforts to shut down the tobacco black market. It's uh, in Victoria. There's a big turf war uh, uh, with the uh, importers and dozens of arson attacks on tobacco stores in Melbourne uh, for control of the illicit trade. Uh, so the uh, crackdown is going to trial new surveillance technologies. The uh, convenience store owners are actually saying you've got to... Uh, uh, target the, the stores individually, rather than trying to stop the uh, stuff coming in uh, at the border. And uh, well, there's really,
1: any- is that what they what? <laughs> is that, is that what they're saying? Stop. Re- well, so- the parlor,
7: stop. Yeah, a stop it trying to come in from the border, but they're saying you've got to target the right. stores okay. individually, right? Yeah, okay. and not just stop trying the. To- Trying to stop the product coming in because it'll find its way in somehow. Right, I, yeah, I, yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah I think they're yeah. more targeting the sale rather than the, <clears throat> the importation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Princess Mary is the new Queen of Denmark. Uh, Queen Consort. Sorry, can't just. Queen Consort, yeah, that's Queen right. Got to get it right. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so that all happened. <laughs> 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 No doubt over you can see. No doubt you can see
1: uh, reruns of that on uh, ABC Twenty Four. I'd imagine you could, <laughs> <laughs> but not as much pomp and ceremony as we saw with uh, yeah. with King Charlie. Uh, to be honest, I hope it's been busy
7: over the weekend. <laughs> <you know. laughs> Tennis was good last month.
1: Yes. Yeah. Abs- put up the uh, the qualifier. It. Put yeah. up and and is uh, he eighteen? Yes, yeah. and he's just he's just won the Junior French right. Open. Mm. Uh, last year and yeah. uh, no one gave him any chance well, at all. He took and that
7: second he, set like a champion. Um, yeah. well, it's just mm.
1: it won't be long before no. he'll be challenging all of them. He's, yeah. a, he's 130 in the world already, which yeah. is no, let's if you're 130 in the world, that means you're a really good tennis yeah, player. absolutely. You can beat anybody. Yeah. So yeah, he's he's got a good future ahead of him. And my boy. Yeah, yeah. Good serve. Yeah. Yeah. yeah great backhand Mm. yeah incredible yeah he
7: made he made made Djokovic work oh he really did yeah because
1: they they say they say you know that the uh Djokovic's style is to make make them run until they're completely exhausted yeah well he was doing the opposite he turned the (laughs) table which is no no mean feat yeah young little rascal quite incredible that's right (laughs) catch me if you can all right thanks for that Adam Adam's story there with the news headlines and some sport as well it's uh, 25 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country. Now let's find out what's happening with the weather details. You unpack park at the Bureau. Good afternoon.
12: Good afternoon, Michael.
1: So, uh, yes, a bit of rain around and there was a bit of rain over the weekend, I gather, too.
12: Yeah, that's right. Uh, particularly uh, along uh, the Illawarra coast and parts of the Sydney metro and central coast and Blue Mountains, that's where we saw the heaviest rainfall. Uh, some parts of Blue Mountains, for example, Karajong Heights uh, reported 150 millimeters in the past 24 hours till 9 a.m. and Uh, Some parts of the Sydney metro, for example, around the Parramatta and the North Rocks also reported uh, more than 100 millimeters uh, in the past 24 hours, mainly uh, between the last night into uh, this morning. And um through the day, we expect uh, the same showers and uh, storms to continue, mainly along the uh, east of the divide. But the focus areas will be particularly along the mid-north coast regions. And as I'm speaking now, we are seeing uh, good rainfall accumulations around the Cobbs Harbor regions. So um, b- m- maybe anywhere between Port Macquarie to Grafton, we may see widespread moderate totals, maybe locally reaching uh of uh, uh, he, very heavy and uh, we, we did that there may be some risk of, uh, uh some uh, flash flooding and uh, lo- uh, localized localized uh, river ice as well um, for today and then tomorrow uh, 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 well uh, we may still see some uh, showers still being active uh, about uh, along the coast especially along the northern half of the coast uh, where we may see uh, another bout of uh, say. Uh, uh, well, moder- uh, widespread uh, uh, showers and maybe locally reaching heavy with uh, slow moving thunderstorms or showers. And also, another development in the state's west for both today and tomorrow in association with a deepening inland trough. And this inland trough will become mobile during the midweek. That means um, th- there will be a risk of severe thunderstorms uh, 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 in many parts of the state between, say, uh, Wednesday and Thursday as the, shift, uh, as, uh, the trough shifts east and with that the risk areas of severe thunderstorms will be shifting east as well. Uh, so with that uh, maybe uh, severe thunderstorms uh, that may still deliver localized heavy falls as well as damaging winds. So in other words we expect uh, wet conditions to continue at least through the midweek and then maybe later in the week as the trough makes its way to the northeast the risk areas will be contracting to the far northeast but the later part of this week, um, but on the other hand, we may potentially see clearing of uh, well, or benign weather in many parts, maybe from say either later part of Thursday into Friday and onward.
1: So, the system that's uh, around the state at the moment is mainly on the, the eastern half, is it? It's not really affecting the inland that much, or maybe the northeast?
12: Uh, inland parts, uh, well, in the far west, in the states far west, we may also see severe thunderstorms for both today and tomorrow. But um, it will be only in the far west, really. Uh, I mean, in the upper western and the lower western area. But if you are talking about northern slopes and the plains, probably not much um, for the next couple of days. Because What about the central, main...
1: central west or Riverina?
12: Um, I, I guess, uh, uh, well, perhaps uh, um, in, in the western half of Riverina, we may see... Uh, uh, showers. Also, uh, well, we may see rainfalls in in the form of uh, localized showers and storms, but probably more so on Wednesday as the trough becomes mobile. So, but on the other hand, for the next couple of days, uh, the main focus will be the east of the divide.
1: Right. Okay. And uh, any you mentioned, there's um, uh, could be some reasonable totals in mid north coast and north coast, but uh, not sort of into the hundred millimeters or anything like
13: that.
12: Uh, well, uh, I mean, for do- those re- regions, uh, we may see uh, widespread, uh, uh, maybe fifty to hundred millimeters. That's quite possible. Right. Uh, and e- even, uh, um, even as I'm speaking now, Bellingen has received already fifty-six millimeters since nine a.m. this morning. So, another fifty, quite possible in uh, in that part of uh, the middle north coast. Uh. And some model guidances may suggest that we may see localized 150 or 200. So that's quite possible. I mean, we right. already have seen more than 150 millimeters in some parts of Blue Mountains. So with the same moist air mass, it is quite a similar total is quite possible in some parts of the mid-north coast today.
1: And on a bit of a flood watch, I mean, you're just sort of watching to see what happens.
12: Uh, well, we are watching uh, what uh, might be happening, but uh, if uh, these totals are remaining isolated, uh, well, uh, the flood level might be remaining maybe below minor, although some river level rises might be possible, but more uh, probably more risk associated with flash flooding rather than riverine flooding.
1: OK, and it'll be rain, it'd be a fair bit of rain around for the next few days, so no real let-up, really. I mean, there'll be rain around the state somewhere for the next probably uh, four or five days at least.
12: That, that's right, yes, because, uh, I mean, across the whole continent, we are seeing incredibly moist air mass, not just uh, dominating over New South Wales, but across the much, much of the continent, really. And uh, so, you, you know, Today, we are seeing this moisture coming from the sea uh, with the onshore easterly. And then during the midweek, with these showers and storms, this moisture will be coming from the central part of Australia. So, and we may not really see the you know, flushing of this moisture, not until the latter part of this week. But it won't be last very long because there is a potential for yet another system you know, next week or week after maybe. So this moisture is not completely disappearing.
1: Juan Park, thanks for that.
12: My pleasure.
1: It's coming up to uh, 18 to 1. You're listening to The Country Hour
4: on ABC Radio New South Wales.
1: A Kiwi shearer has smashed the women's world record for the most strong wool ew shorn in an eight-hour day and has her sights set on even loftier goals. Catherine Mullooly shorn 465 ewes in eight hours to beat the previous record by 79 sheep and even went past uh, the uh, nine-hour record of 452. Angus Verley spoke with her about what she describes as the best day of her decorated sharing career
14: yeah it went really well i just i had it in my head that um it was going to be the best day sharing i've ever had so when times did get a little bit tough i just thought um, a friend of mine said remember you're living your dreams <laughs> um, it's a little thing that we share is say we're living the dream <laughs> so yeah i remembered that and it got me through
15: and Kath, the, the record you were targeting it had it only been set a, a few days before your record attempt, but three hundred and eighty-six head was your target, and you sure four sixty-five.
14: Yeah. So you absolutely
15: yeah. smashed that that record.
14: Yeah, yeah. It was just a personal goal, always chasing that yeah that personal best of your own. Eh? It's it's um it's all it's all for you at the end of the day. So yeah i actually I had a bigger goal in mind, uh, but i just I just couldn't do it on on the day, so um yeah, yeah I smashed my second goal.
15: <laughs> so what was the original goal?
14: i uh, really I really want to do 500 just in my lifetime <laughs> i really I've always wanted to do 500 on you, so um we'll get there one day
15: so you, so you've you've smashed the world record, but you're you're still not content.
14: Oh no, I am. I am for the day. Yeah, I think it went as well as it as it possibly could could have done. So yeah, I'm really happy.
15: And Kathy, run tallies uh, one seventeen, one seventeen, one sixteen, one sixteen. So is that, is that something that you, you pride yourself on that that consistency?
14: Yeah, definitely. Had a good team behind me, keeping me going all day. Eh, and um. Uh, you know, you can just walk away at Smoco, and um, and your gear is just going to go mint. You've got no worries.
15: And right from the outset, Catherine, the start of the day, did did it did it feel like things were flowing for you? And did you did you always think that you were on track to to cheer a big tally?
14: I definitely knew, like I knew I could do four hundred, but I guess like. I've heard people that have done records before saying, you know, like on the day you'll you'll be surprised at what you do, I guess with the atmosphere and and all of the little things you know, having the boys talking to you all day and your gear, and you know the sheep are really good, and all of all of the things all coming together, like you don't you don't get that at a normal day sharing, so I expected. That it would be the best day of shearing of my life,
15: and and so the best day of of your life of, of a long shearing career, Kath. What what was the feeling when you finally saw that last sheep at the end of the eight hours?
14: Oh, uh, it was the last sort of actually the last hour. I think after I got the record, and then you know, you know that last bit of time is just it's it's all on you then kind of thing. Um, that's what it felt like. It, it was just all on me to to set that tally as high as I could, and yeah, it, gave, it definitely gave me some adrenaline um, to run on and get through the day. On it was actually pretty exciting that last that last sort of hour hour quarter. Yeah, it's making my heart race just thinking about it.
15: <laughs> and and Kath, just just reading some reports about about the day. It sounds like some of the sheep weren't particularly cooperative for you.
14: Yeah, they're I guess just typical. They've got a bit of Perindale in them, so anyone that knows that breed, yeah, knows what they're they're a bit spicy. But um they're beautiful shearing sheep. And
15: and for you, Kath, to to establish yourself as as one of the best shearers in the world, what what's the secret? Is it your technique, your physical fitness, your, your your mental strength? What is it?
14: Yeah, I don't know. There's something inside you, I guess, that pushes you. There's, there's something about shearing. Um, <laughs> I think anyone that's that's drawn a sheep and continued after that first sheep is, I don't know, you catch a bug or something, and um, yeah. I can't explain it, to
15: be honest. And what's the future for you, Kath? You're, you're uh, still relatively young. You, have you got more record attempts? Like you mentioned earlier that, that 500 target. <laughs> relatively.
14: <Is> that, <laughs> relatively.
15: Well, you, yeah, you mentioned earlier that 500U that target. Is that something you're still going to strive toward?
14: Yeah, I think I'd love to do that in my life. I don't know if I've ever said it out loud, but um, that's... Yeah, it's always been my goal. I've always really like enjoyed the challenge of sharing views. And
15: Kath, I asked this question to Sasha Bond too when I spoke to her recently. But just can you just explain for us Australians how our New Zealand shearers and the best shearers, the guns, how they're regarded in New Zealand and the high regard that they're they're held in?
14: Yeah, I feel like it's a bit of an unspoken thing. You know, like um, I know some of the most rest- the the people that I have the most respect for, if I think hard about it, then they're, they're not they're not big talkers. They they're just you know head down, half up, and and they mahi hard, and they're they're really good people, and um and it shows in their mahi, not not in their words, um so much. So I just feel so blessed to have had. It's gonna it's gonna make me emotional, like, um I feel so blessed to have had people like that and that all shed helping me achieve this goal.
15: And Kath, clearly your your passion, your love for the industry shines through.
14: Yeah, definitely. I feel like this industry was almost like my saving grace when I was a teenager and didn't know what I wanted to do and I feel like now that I'm older, I've realised that a lot of people go through that stage, you know, after high school, and it's a difficult, it's just a difficult time, can be, for young people.
1: That was Gun Shearer, Catherine Maluli, uh, record holder, speaking there with Angus Verley. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's coming up to 11 minutes to one. Well, the number of war bales offered at last week's uh, three war sales in Sydney, Melbourne, and Fremantle was the largest in eight months. It was the first sale after the Christmas break, and East Gippsland District War Manager with Elders, Maddie Gallagher, says that uh, with the Lunar New Year a few weeks away, it helped demand as orders needed to be shipped this week.
6: We had a very strong sale uh, at the end of 2023. So What this led to was a lot of people putting wool into the first sale back. We had a massive three-day sale comprising of 50,884 bales. This is the largest opening sale we've had in three years and the largest sale in eight months. The week opened very strongly on the Tuesday, increases of 20 cents in the Merino fleece, but this quickly tapered off and lost momentum through the week to lead to a pretty much unchanged market. We have another another massive sale this week, 55,660 bales, which will put pressure on the market. These are mostly crossbred bales, but one thing we have in our favour is shipping deadlines for the Chinese New Year looming. So basically things need to be brought this week to make it before Chinese New Year, which is the 10th of Feb. Good wool should be okay this week, but it could be a bit tough for any of the um, off-sorts like types of wool.
1: Meanwhile Elders District War Manager at Mildura Emma Turner says there's a lot of international issues creating uncertainty in the war market including potential German recession, the Chinese economy, the US election plus conflicts in Ukraine and Israel and Gaza. But security concerns around the Red Sea region which includes the pivotal Suez Canal shipping route which provides the fastest route between Europe and Asia is also causing problems for wool exporters when they ship processed wool from China to Europe. Miss Turner says it's at a considerable cost to those shipping containers through the region with many forced to take a longer alternative route after a series of freight vessels have been attacked.
5: And then over in the canal in the Red Sea there's a bit of an issue as well um, and that's adding around 15 days to a journey time at the moment um, also adding around 4500 to $5,000 extra cost per container when it comes to freight. So there's still quite a few global issues going on at the moment. And until that starts to settle down and economies stabilise, it's a bit hard to predict an upturn anytime reasonably soon, that's for sure.
1: Wall manager with Elders, Emma Turner there. Now that diversion of ships trying to avoid the Suez Canal is apparently adding an additional $4,500 to $5,000 per container, according to the Elders analysis. We're still on wool, and uh, Marty Moses is the managing director of Martin & Sons Wall Brokers, and uh, he told Josh Becker that there's uh, some positive signs in the short term, but it still could be a challenging year for the wall market.
16: Generally speaking, there was a lot of positivity and as the week went on and and exporters sort of got a new basis, uh, a lot of wool traded at pretty consistent levels.
9: As we take a step back and look at what might be on the cards for the the calendar year ahead, what do you think are the the key drivers you're keeping an eye on for what could determine the, the fate of the wool market for 2024?
16: Yeah, that's a really good question and and one, you know, it's nice to get excited about a couple of rises but the big picture that uh, we're looking at uh, in our company and I guess the rest of the world's looking at is, you know, recoveries of economies around the world and what the key drivers there are in growth in GDP, uh, what interest rates are going to do, cost of business and at the end of the day, uh, discretionary spending um, availability for our consumer. And and the 2024 outlook doesn't look that flash for our major economies. Um, GDP growth is almost uh, all in, uh, a, a, you know, re- recessing still, even though that 23 has been a reasonable year for GDP growth, there's been some consolidation. Most people are looking forward into 24 to say, you know, that's going to be slightly less in our major European economies, the Chinese economy the US economy.
1: Marty Moses, managing director of Martin and Sons, Wall Brokers. Let's go to markets.
5: First up to Corowa Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted off the back of last week's dearer Trends with agents penning a total of 14,600 lambs and 7,600 sheep. The quality remained good with all weights and grades on offer. A full field of buyers were present with mixed competition. Prices were 20 to $30 softer. Sean... Heavy trade lambs slipped $32, $165 to $213. Heavy lambs eased $18, selling from $185 to $232 to average seven hundred and fifty dollars per kilo carcass weight. Extra heavy export types were unchanged, $228 to $280. Light shorn lambs selling from $100 to $126, with extra light lambs down to $61. Trade weight new season lambs sold from 143 up to 191, reaching 233 for export types. Mutton demand was strong. Heavy merinos 88 to 108 crossbreds 82 to 108, and medium sheep sold from 68 to 100 dollars. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Bendigo sheep and lambs.
17: Good afternoon. Lamb market softened as the pressure starts to come off. Buyers from the big wet more on offer today with 19,000 lambs but the sheep market bucked the trend to be dearer despite numbers doubling to 8,700 head. Heavier shorn lambs over 30 kilos carcass weight from 207 to a top of $260 for crossbreds at a ballpark cost of 700 to 720 cents a kilo. Some of the export weight Dorper lambs and unshorn suckers were in the 650 to 700 cent range. And the feel of the sale today was that he's trying to find a level, and prices did bounce around a bit. There were still isolated sales of neat trades to 780 cents, but the bulk of lambs to processors tracked from 670 to 730 cents a kilo. This meant the twenty six to thirty kilo shorn lambs made one hundred and seventy nine to two hundred and thirteen, the twenty four to twenty sixes one hundred and fifty nine to one hundred and eighty eight. Sheepsaw was dearer with heavy mutton pushing over two hundred dollars on multiple occasions, reaching one hundred and twenty four dollars for merino use and one hundred and ten for crossbreds. Most sheep sixty to ninety dollars, trending either side of three hundred cents a kilo carcass weight. Jenny Kelly for MLA.
13: Double sheep and lambs. Numbers were up by almost 6,000 free yarding of 17,600 lambs. It was a pretty good quality yarding with a good selection of heavyweight lambs along with odd pens of tray weights. There were good numbers of exotic lambs which were mostly in good condition along with fair numbers of well-finished merino lambs and hoggets. Lightweight lambs to the processors were up to $12 cheaper with the 12 to 18 kilogram two scores selling from 52 to 95. Trade lambs were firm with the 20 to 24 kilogram old lambs selling from 128 to 180 to average between 700 and 750 cents a kilogram. Heavyweight lambs were $10 dearer with the 24 to 30 kilogram lambs selling from 176 to 240 to average between 760 and 800 cents. Heavyweight lambs over 30 kilograms sold from 235 to 284. Merino lambs were $8 cheaper with trade weights selling from 88 to 135. Hoggets are up to $14 dearer, with crossbread selling to 148, while Merino hoggets sold from 88 to 105. We have the balance of the land and 13,600 mutton still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Let's go to Forbes Cattle.
4: Good afternoon. With no sale for almost a month, agents yarded a thousand and ninety-two head. Quality was fair, with good numbers of finished cattle on offer, along with a large run of breeder cattle suitable to feed or return to the paddock. The usual buyers are present, competing in a market that is open significantly stronger than the previous sale. Yearling steers to feed sold from two sixty to three forty-five. Those to resockers receiving from three twenty-eight to three sixty-six. The better types to processors ranged in price from two seventy to three ten. They have a portion of feed sold from 240 to 310, with restockers paying from 250 to 312. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA.
1: Wagga cattle.
4: Good afternoon, feedlots took centre stage, dominating a significantly larger yarding of 4,010. The overall numbers surged by 2,000 head. Bullocks stole the spotlight and jumped 50 cents, ranging from 2.58 to 3.14. Heavy steers destined for processors also emerged as a hot commodity, experienced a rise of 35 cents to average 291. Heavy heifers too enjoyed the moment in the limelight, exhibiting a jump of 30 cents and reaching a top Of 3.06. Feeder steers across all weight categories witnessed gains of 20 to 25 cents with lighter weights ranging from $3 to 3.70. Trade steers were relatively scarce but achieved solid sales fetching 3.20 to 3.35. Trade heifers are up seven and range from 2.66 to 3.10. Feeder heifers were particularly sought after this week and jumped 23 cents. The cow market displayed remarkable robustness and increased 15 to 20 cents while the lighter weights jumped 30 cents in prolonged bidding jewels topping at 270 while heavy cows commanded prices ranging from 240
1: to 276. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Let's go to uh, Tamworth cattle now.
13: Good afternoon. A sharp increase in numbers to 1,600 head was little to be concerned about in what was a very strong market. A full field of buyers competed strongly on all categories where quality and condition was generally good. Not many lightweight young cattle to suit restockers. Medium and heavyweight yearling feeder steers were dearer by as much as 20 cents a kilo, selling from 2.96 to three fifty seven cents a kilo. Heavy trade showing similar gains to three thirty cents Heavy yearlings to restockers posted strong gains with lightweight sea muscles to 260 to 314. Medium and heavy feed is keenly sought to be significantly dearer. 285 to 334 with heavy trade. 285 to 332. Ground steers over 500 kilos to feed. Sold strongly. 270 to 320 with processes paying to 328. James Armitage for MLA.